China says that contraption over the United States is just researching weather. Yeah, okay, sure. The lead starts right now. China is calling it a civilian airship. The U.S. calls it a spy balloon. Whatever you call it, it's causing a huge diplomatic rift between two global superpowers as the Pentagon contemplates shooting it down and hate in homeschooling the discovery of disturbing pro-Nazi and racist teachings to young kids in Ohio, sparking a debate over what parents can teach their children at home under the auspices of education. Plus, chat GPT growing faster than TikTok or Instagram bound to revolutionize how we operate, maybe even about to take your day job. Welcome to The Lead. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is speaking right now about his canceled trip to China. Let's listen in. Um, in our skies is a clear violation of our sovereignty, a clear violation of international law, and clearly unacceptable. And we've made that clear uh, to, uh, to China. Um, any country that has its airspace violated in this way, I think, would uh, respond similarly. And uh, I can only imagine what the reaction would be in China if they were on uh, the other end. And what this has done uh, is created the conditions um, that undermine the purpose of the trip, including ongoing efforts to build a floor under the relationship uh, and to address a broad range of issues that are of concern uh, to the American people, uh, I believe to the Chinese people, and certainly as well to people uh, around the world. Um, So uh, we took the step that uh, I um, announced earlier today in postponing the planned visit for this weekend. Meanwhile, uh, we are going to remain uh, engaged with the PRC as this ongoing issue uh, is resolved. Uh, the first step is getting the surveillance asset out of our airspace, uh, and that's what we're focused on. Um, and I thought it was very important for Wang Yi, the senior foreign policy official, Uh, in Beijing to hear this directly from me. Um, It would be premature for me to weigh in on any other specifics uh, as this surveillance balloon remains in our airspace. As I said, job one is getting it out of our airspace. Um, We continue to believe that having open lines of communication uh, is important. Indeed, this uh, uh, incident only underscores uh, the importance, and that's why we will uh, maintain them. Uh, and that's also why, when conditions permit, uh, I uh, plan to go to, uh, to China. But uh, the most important thing right now in the moment is uh, to see that this surveillance asset gets out of our airspace, and we'll take it from there. Sung Mo Nam of SBS. Andrea, Andrea, we Again, need to move on. I, uh, I don't want to get ahead of uh, anything other than to say that the first step is to get the surveillance uh, craft out of our airspace. Sungmo Nam of SBS. Thank you. Uh, I have two questions. Firstly, uh, Mr. Secretary Blinken. Uh, North Korea's nuclear threats are increasing every day, even openly, especially to South Korea. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We've been listening to Secretary of State Antony Blinken speaking at the U.S. State Department after announcing that he is canceling his upcoming trip to Beijing, China, at least for now, after a suspected Chinese spy balloon was spotted flying over the United States. The balloon is about the size of three school buses, we're told. Today, the Pentagon said the balloon is currently about 60,000 feet over the central United States, but would not give a specific location. 
Although most recently, around 2 p.m. Eastern, a balloon was spotted in the skies over Columbia, Missouri. And shortly before then, the National Weather Service in Kansas City, Missouri, tweeted these images of a balloon, decidedly not theirs. Today, Republicans and Democrats are demanding answers from the Biden administration as to how this happened, how this was allowed to happen, and why the Biden administration has taken the steps they did or did not. President Biden, we're told, has decided for now not to shoot the balloon out of the sky because of concerns that the debris could injure or kill civilians and seriously damage buildings. But as CNN's Alex Marquardt reports for us now, the Pentagon is not ruling out that as a potential option in the coming days. There is a ground stop on our airport, and this thing is up in the sky. This thing, now believed by the United States to be a Chinese government spy balloon, flying 60,000 feet up in the atmosphere over the country. Uh, we do know that the balloon has violated U.S. airspace and international law, uh, which is unacceptable. U.S. defense officials have been tracking it closely for several days, debating whether to shoot it down and advising President Joe Biden it would be too dangerous. We assess that it does not pose a risk to people on the ground as it currently is traversing the continental United States. And so out of an abundance of caution, uh, cognizant of the potential impact to civilians on the ground uh, from a debris field, uh, right now we're going to continue to monitor and review options. The news breaking just days before Secretary of State Antony Blinken was due to travel to Beijing, the administration's highest level trip to China so far. The trip now postponed, despite a rare Chinese apology and claim that the balloon was for civilian purposes and floated off course. The presence of this surveillance balloon in U.S. airspace is a clear violation of U.S. sovereignty and international law, that it's an irresponsible act and that the PRC's decision to take this action on the eve of my planned visit is detrimental to the substantive discussions that we were prepared to have. The Pentagon says steps have been taken to protect sensitive intelligence targets on the ground. The balloon is the size of three buses, equipped with solar panels for power and a surveillance payload. Satellite and other data indicate the balloon may have originated in central China, with weather patterns pushing it out over the Pacific Ocean into Canada and down into the United States, where it has been crossing Montana and into Missouri. It can maneuver itself and has changed course, currently floating over the central U.S., officials say, while offering little more on its precise location. The public certainly has the ability to look up in the sky and and see where the balloon is. And they have, curiously, training eyes and cameras towards the skies. What planet is that? And Jake, Secretary Blinken has said that he will reschedule his trip to Beijing as soon as conditions allow. What those conditions are, they will not say, but clearly the temperature needs to come down. We just heard Secretary Blinken say now the number one priority is to get this balloon out of our airspace. The Pentagon believes that this could be several more days, in fact, so they will keep watching it as it floats on by, keeping their options open. Jake? All right, Alex Marquardt at the U.S. State Department for us. Thank you so much. Let's bring in CNN Senior International Correspondent Ivan Watson in Hong Kong, CNN National Security Correspondent Kylie Atwood, and CNN Aviation Correspondent Pete Montine. And Pete, I want to start with your brand new reporting. You're learning that pilots are reporting seeing this balloon during their flights. Well, it was only a matter of time before pilots started spotting this, Jake. They're flying at high altitudes. And what's so interesting is that they're reporting this balloon only a few thousand feet above them. Look at this report from the crew of a Cessna Citation private jet flying at 43,000 feet. They said, derelict 
balloon adrift at 50,000 feet, only a 7,000 foot difference there. They reported that not all that long ago near the Kansas City, Missouri International Airport. What is also so interesting here is that the Pentagon says the balloon was cruising at 60,000 feet. So there's a question here about whether or not this balloon is descending. Remember, airliners are typically at an altitude of about 30,000 feet. So the other big question here is whether or not this balloon will descend and have more of an impact on commercial air travel in the U.S. We have already seen that happen once before. On Wednesday, there was a ground stop and flights were diverted from about a 200-mile swath of airspace between Helena and Billings, Montana. We know that lasted for two hours. Now the question is whether or not there will be more ground stops because of this and how this balloon will descend to the ground. Will it pop or will it come down gracefully? Remember, what goes up has to come down, Jake. And Ivan, uh, Secretary Blinken's trip to China has been postponed. No future dates have been announced. We should note, it's not often that a visit to such a significant adversary is made by a Secretary of State, much less canceled. It seems like a, a fairly significant diplomatic breach here. Absolutely. This is a big deal. And the relationship between the U.S. and China have, have really soured uh, over the past couple of years. Uh, This trip by Blinken was supposed to be building on uh, a meeting between President Biden and the Chinese leader Xi Jinping in Bali at the G20 summit in November. The Biden administration had been complaining that Chinese officials simply weren't talking to U.S. officials. And uh, there had been an agreement to reopen lines of communication and try to build guardrails to to prevent the world's two largest economies, the tensions from spiraling out of control. So now you have this serious incident, which uh, Blinken, we just heard him speaking from Korea, calling it uh, irresponsible, a violation of international law, a violation of U.S. airspace and sovereignty, uh, but also saying, hey, we've been able to communicate directly about this to prevent the tensions from spiraling out of control. Uh, That seems to be paying some dividends right now. At the same time, though, the Biden administration has said we cannot have this visit at this time, that this is going to be a distraction uh, and there's a major problem here. Uh, So I do think we're seeing some results of that diplomacy right now. Uh, The big question, what to do about this balloon? And I'm sure that U.S. security officials would love to get their hands on the technology that the balloon is carrying right now. Yeah, indeed. And Kylie, the Pentagon confirmed uh, today, this is not the first time a surveillance balloon has appeared over the United States, but, but previous instances were not made public. So why is this time different? Just because people in the public saw it? I think that's part of it. I also think the fact that it happened on the eve of the Secretary of State's planned visit uh, is also quite consequential here. We heard that from senior State Department officials today saying, yes, this has happened before, uh, but this is happening before this major visit that we had all been planning for. We don't think that visit can now be as productive as we had hoped. That's why they're pulling it down. We heard just now from the Secretary of State saying that the decision to take this action is detrimental on behalf half of China. What that indicates is that the United States believes that it was deliberate that China actually allowed or sent this spy balloon over the United States. Perhaps it was even deliberate that it happened right before this trip was going to go ahead, sort of to test the United States. The other thing that he said is that the United States right now is focused first and foremost on getting this spy balloon 
out of U.S. airspace. What they're asking China to do, we really don't know. But he didn't count out any additional repercussions for China as a result of this, you know, violating U.S. sovereignty other than pulling down his trip. Jake? And, and Ivan, on CNN earlier today, the former Secretary of Defense under Donald Trump, Mark Esper, said he finds it curious that the Chinese government is making excuses instead of outright denying that it's their balloon. What do you make of how Chinese officials are handling this? I'm really stunned, actually. I mean, I've been based here in Hong Kong for more than seven years, Jake. I've never heard the Chinese government expressing regret over its actions before. Uh, Something akin to an apology right here. Uh, Basically coming out and saying, yes, this is uh, our balloon and it's flown off course. They've they've claimed that it is a meteorological uh, uh, balloon, which, of course, the Pentagon uh, has challenged that that description of uh, of this of this thing. Uh, But it is a a far cry from the tone that we have typically heard in past years, this so-called wolf warrior diplomacy uh, that's come out of the Chinese government and Chinese officials where they're aggressive and nationalistic and and pounce on things. Instead, here, there there is acknowledgement that that this is theirs. Uh, Maybe part of this has to do with the fact that Americans can see this thing with the naked eye. Uh, We just... The Chinese government is very opaque, so it's hard to know what could be the motivation for sending this thing up in the air at this time. Is it deliberate? Is it, in fact, an accident that this thing uh, blew off course? But it it is a huge symbol right now. And it's not just uh, affecting the U.S. China has summoned uh, the uh, sorry, Canada has had to summon the Chinese ambassador there because it flew through Canadian airspace as well. So it does look embarrassing, I could argue, for the Chinese government to have this giant thing floating around, especially when China makes such a big deal about uh, infringements on its own national sovereignty and accuses the U.S. of this almost on a daily basis. And Kylie, you spoke to some family members uh, of one of the Americans currently wrongfully detained in China, uh, and they were closely watching Secretary Blinken's trip to Beijing to see if their cases were going to be brought up. They must be very disappointed in some ways. Of course, this was an opportunity for them. They were really hoping that the Secretary of State was going to raise all three Americans who are wrongfully detained in China in these meetings and potentially, you know, get some action on some back and forth to try and get their release. But as we have seen in U.S.-China relations, when there's one bad thing, it often happens to have ripple effects on other efforts that they're trying to get going underway. So this is not a good thing for these families. Pete Muntean, Ivan Watson, Kylie Atwood, thanks so much. Let's talk about this all now with Republican Congressman Mike Lawler of New York. He's on the Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, Congressman, good to see you. Do you agree with the decision Secretary Blinken made to, at least for now, postpone his trip to China? Uh, Yes, I think that's the right decision. You know, China got caught with their hand in the cookie jar here. And I think we need more explanation, frankly, from the Biden administration especially since it's uh, clear that they were aware of this for several days. But the the fact that uh, they have, uh, you know, come into U.S. airspace uh, and violated our sovereignty. And, and frankly, uh, I think there's certainly a question of, of the privacy of Americans uh, here. Uh, I, I think there are a lot of questions that need to be answered um, and so I definitely think it was the right uh, thing to do to, to pause this trip. 
you know, China is our greatest geopolitical threat. And the reason Speaker McCarthy uh, and the House Republican majority have uh, created the Select Committee on China is for reasons like this. Yeah. Uh, we, we are, uh, you know, in, in a serious situation with them and we need to take them serious as an adversary. The balloon was spotted uh, earlier this week over the state of Montana, which is where 100 intercontinental ballistic missiles are buried in missile silos at the Malmstrom Air Force Base. Uh, Are you confident that the Chinese government was not able to access any top secret information or military secrets? I I am not, and I think there's serious concern. I mean, you know, obviously uh, the Pentagon is aware. I think, uh, you know, there are questions as to why this was not uh, shot down, this spy balloon uh, shot down. Uh, as soon as we were aware it came into American airspace. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think there are a lot of questions still to be answered. And, and I think, obviously, the Biden administration uh, should work closely with Congress here uh, to provide those answers as quickly as possible. On that subject, the Pentagon says that the decision was made not to shoot the balloon down, at least not right now, because debris could uh, injure or kill people on the ground, ser- seriously damage buildings. Take a listen to what former defense secretary under the Trump administration, Mark Esper, said about that subject, shooting it down on CNN earlier today. My interest would be not necessarily shooting it down, but bringing it down so that we can capture the the equipment and understand exactly what what they're doing. Are they taking pictures? Are they intercepting signals? What are they doing and what is the level of uh, technical capability? What do you think? No, I don't think he's wrong at all. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, the Chinese are saying one thing uh, that this is uh, about uh, weather. And uh, obviously, we have great concern that this is about spying. And so uh, I think if we're able to, uh, you know, bring this down safely, certainly, uh, and examine the balloon and the technology that is being used as part of it, uh, certainly, that is something that would, uh, I'm sure, be of great interest to uh, to the Pentagon. Former Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, who's also a lieutenant colonel in the Air National Guard, he suggested that maybe the Chinese government is trying to make the U.S. shoot down the balloon so the Chinese can get a better idea of the U.S. air capabilities. Can planes get up that high and, and function in that way? Do you think that's possible? Look, I think we could play a lot of hypotheticals and and what ifs here. Uh, But the bottom line is this balloon should not be flying over U.S. airspace. Uh, And the fact that it continues to unimpeded uh, is a problem. And so I think uh, the Biden administration uh, needs to uh, act to bring this to a a swift resolution here. And and certainly uh, as a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee, I am very interested in uh, getting answers to many of these questions. What kind of surveillance does the United States do over countries like China? I imagine we do, uh, the United States does quite a bit. I don't know if it's like we limit it to satellites in outer space or, or what, but what might the counter argument or the greater context be on that? Look, I'm not going to get into all of the dynamics. Uh, obviously, every country uh, you know, does uh, certain things to to protect their own interests. But I think the 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 bottom line here is that this is a very clear violation of international law, very clear violation of American sovereignty uh, and airspace. 
and we have uh, an obligation to address it. And so I think, you know, for the immediate, uh, we need to bring this to a swift resolution. Uh, and, you know, it just, again, speaks volumes to the situation with respect to China. They are our greatest geopolitical threat. They are a threat economically. They are a threat militarily. And we need to take it serious. And, and that is why, as part of the House Republican majority, we created this select committee on China. And we are going to be raising a lot of questions uh, about this, including uh, this latest incident. All right. Republican Congressman Mike Lawler of New York, thank you so much. Good to see you again. Coming up next, the double take on today's jobs report, a whopping 517,000 jobs added in, in January. But how does that square with all the layoffs we keep reading about day after day? Plus, the troops acting as Russia's right hand on the battlefield in Ukraine and what their dwindling numbers could mean if Putin does, as expected, try to ramp up his brutal invasion against Ukraine in the coming weeks. Stay with us. An astonishingly positive jobs report showing the labor market is currently booming. The United States added 517,000 jobs in January. The unemployment rate fell to 3.4%, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. This is the lowest unemployment has been since 1969. 1969. President Biden touted these numbers today. Today, today I'm happy to report that the State of the Union and the state of our economy is strong. We created 12 million, 12 million jobs since I took office. Put simply, I would argue the Biden economic plan is working. CNN's Richard Quest is here with us. And Richard, what do these numbers mean? Well, it is a conundrum, Jake. Um, I can give you the nuts and bolts of them, and I can tell you that it's in hospitality, it's in restaurants, it's in travel. Those were the people coming back into the industry. Uh, But that really doesn't explain the eye-popping nature of this number. Economists are surprised that with 400 basis points plus 4% of increase in interest rates and more to come, that the labour market is still this robust. And the only way one can say it is that this is what it's like now and that there will probably be a very different picture by mid to late of this year. Now, that doesn't mean to say it's not good news now, but it means it is the calm before the storm. But Richard, what about the tech industry? Because I keep hearing and reading about layoff after layoff. Yes, but put that in context. Those companies, the Amazons, the Apples, uh, uh, and the like, they are the ones that really ramped up through pandemic. They are the ones that added millions of jobs and now find themselves overstaffed with the potential for a drop-off in orders. So they are trimming back. But the numbers are large, but they're not horrifically big. Yes, when you say 20,000 or 10,000 jobs, that's horrific in a sense of those involved. But it's often only 3 4% of the workforce. And the one thing we do know about tech, as soon as things pick up, they will start employing again. So they are a bellwether as well as a follower. Over the past few months, we, we kept hearing from economists that the U.S. could be headed for a recession, yet we have these job numbers today. How is that possible? Now, Jake, I, you know, it is perfectly possible. This is the calm before the storm. 
This is, this is all the money everybody saved during pandemic. Two trillion dollars worth. Now, a, a trillion of it has since been spent. But, Jake, it would be foolish to believe that 2023 is going to look like this right the way through. Every economist I've spoken to, pretty much, says that by mid to late year, that is when the recession, if it comes, will come. And most still believe it will come. The calm before the storm. All right, Richard Quest, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, the economy will likely be a primary focus of President Biden's State of the Union address, which is coming up next week on Tuesday. Join me, along with Anderson Cooper, for special coverage Tuesday night starting at 8 p.m. Eastern here on CNN. They're reportedly shot when they refuse to fight. How Putin's brutal war is even running out of hardened criminals to join the battle. Stay with us. In our world lead, Russia's barbaric bombardment of densely populated areas of Ukraine. The strikes come as the war rages in the eastern Donbass region, as Ukraine's military works to try to stop Russian forces from encircling the, encircling the key city of Bakhmut. And as CNN's Fred Plykin reports for us from Ukraine now, authorities are vowing to prevent a Russian breakthrough. We want to warn you that some of the images you're about to see are, are rather graphic and disturbing. Ukrainian reinforcements on the move around the embattled city, Bakhmut. While the Russians have made gains here recently, Kiev is now sending in some of its toughest combatants. Ukraine's president vowing stiff resistance. We consider Bakhmut our fortress, he says. We consider our soldiers who have fallen here heroes. If we get accelerated weapons, especially long range, we will not only gain ground around Bakhmut, but we will also begin to deoccupy Donbass. Russia's gains here have come mostly thanks to this man. Yevgeny Prigozhin, head of the brutal Wagner private military company, now showing off his group's ever heavier weapons. Wagner has long styled itself as Vladimir Putin's most effective fighting force, often using convicts recruited straight from Russian jails for near suicidal assaults on Ukrainian positions. The U.S. and Ukraine say Wagner troopers who refuse are often shot on the spot, a claim Wagner has not denied. After taking a small village north of Bakhmut, these fighters even brag about the appalling conditions. The guys swam across the river, he says. Their hands and feet froze. Some lost their limbs. But they went ahead and did not ask for evacuation. While visiting a new Wagner training center in an occupied part of Ukraine, Prigozhin admitted he wants more fighters, ruthless, brutal, and expendable. Here they finish their training, he said. First, they make them into baby eagles, and here they become cannibals. But those so-called cannibals appear to be dying by the thousands. This drone footage, given to us by Ukrainian forces, purports to show scores of Wagner fighters littering the hills around Bakhmut. The drone commander tells me Wagner's assault tactics are extremely wasteful. They mix in prisoners with no combat experience and send them as cannon fodder to exhaust our fighters, he says. Then they send their own special forces to attack our flanks. While Ukrainian troops are on the back foot in Bakhmut, 
Wagner's attrition rate might be so high, they can't even find enough convicts to use as cannon fodder, says Olga Romanova of the civil rights group Russia Behind Bars that keeps in touch with those sent to Ukraine by Wagner. 77% is the number of combat and non-combat Wagner losses in the current campaign, she says. That includes killed, wounded, deserted, and captured. And though Ukrainian troops say they themselves are losing too many soldiers, they vow to outlast Russia's mercenaries dying in their thousands on the Eastern Front. <laughs> And you know, Jake, as we've been reporting, both the U.S. and Ukraine believe that Russia is about to launch a large-scale offensive in the east of Ukraine and possibly in other areas as well. Vladimir Zelensky, the president of this country, he today said he believes that Vladimir Putin is out for revenge because so far his military campaign has been going so badly. Now, of course, the Ukrainians say they want to stop the Russians at all costs. They also say in order to do that, they need no more longer-distance weapons. But one of the other interesting things that we picked up on as well is that Ukraine's defense minister says the Ukrainians also need a lot more artillery and artillery shells to hold up the Russians once they start coming, especially in the east, Jake. All right, Fred Pleitkin in Dnieper, Ukraine. Thank you so much. If you cover reading, writing, and arithmetic, can you also treat, teach hate at homeschool? Coming up next, a reported pro-Nazi homeschool network in Ohio renewing questions about the standards when parents are the teachers. In our national lead, Ohio education officials are investigating the discovery of a reported white supremacist pro-Nazi homeschooling network with 3,000 subscribers that operates about an hour south of Toledo. Some of the questions, uh, some of the lessons rather, included quotes from Adolf Hitler in handwriting exercises. Martin Luther King Jr. is described as, quote, deceitful, dishonest, and riot inciting. The discovery renews a debate over what parents can teach children who are homeschooled. Let's bring in Frederick Lawrence, the CEO of the Phi Beta Kappa Society and a distinguished lecturer at Georgetown Law Center. Fred, welcome back. So Ohio, like every state, requires homeschooling instruction to include the basics, math and reading and writing. It doesn't tell parents how to teach those things, right? Should, should that change? It should change to the extent that there has to be closer viewing in advance what the curricula are going to be like. There should be strong deference to what parents want to do, but there are limits, Jake. And obviously, I would have thought that one of the limits is you can't inculcate Nazi values as part of an American school curriculum. What about denigrating Martin Luther King Jr.? I think with all of these things, there are lines that we would and would not draw. And the parents are more than free to share these things with their, with their children uh, at the dinner table that night. I happen to disagree with their views, but they're free to express them. But if this is in place of schooling. We have compulsory education America have for more than 100 years. This is in place of being in school. And you say that this situation demonstrates the difference between free expression and also academic freedom. What do, you, what do you mean by that? That's right. Free expression means that the parents certainly have the right to express these views. They can discuss them with their children. They could come on here and discuss them with you if you wanted to listen to them. What they can't do is make this part of a school curriculum, not because they're not allowed to say these things, because it's not part of an educational curriculum. They can't teach flat earth science either. There are limits. Obviously, there are shades of gray. Obviously, there are lots of ranges of ways of teaching things. But because there are shades of gray doesn't mean that sometimes it's noon and sometimes it's midnight. 
This is midnight. Do homeschooling networks have to get approval from the state? Different states work differently, and my understanding is that Ohio has a fairly hands-off view, and I think that's what's going to be discussed right now. And again, when they review these curricula, I wouldn't expect it to be overly invasive. I wouldn't want them to say it has to be liberal, it has to be conservative. That would be interference. Uh, What do you make, uh, while I have you here, of what happened with the AP, uh, the Advanced Placement African American Histories, a course in Florida. There was a pilot program. Uh, obviously, Governor DeSantis and, and the Secretary of Education there objected to some of what was in there. And AP basically took away all of the controversial part of that proposed uh, course. They said, well, we don't do extra reading suggestions in any other AP course, uh, so we're going to get rid of it here too. But they insisted that it had nothing to do with the political pressure they were getting. I'm a little skeptical of that. It looks to me like they blinked and they blinked hard. They should make the judgment based on academic values as to what the pr- curriculum should be. Apparently, they did that the first time. They pulled back and that they pulled a lot of things out of that curriculum. I think it sets a very, very bad precedent. These should be academic decisions made by academics, not political decisions made by politicians. Frederick Lawrence from the Phi Beta Kappa Society. Always good to have you here. Thank you good so to be much. With good you. to see you. Coming up next, the warp speed growth of the website with that weird name, ChatGPT, and how big businesses are trying to capitalize on what it can do. In our tech lead now, imagine passing a medical school exam without even having to spend a single day in class for it. That's how good and convincing the artificial intelligence chat GPT is. CNN's Tom Foreman first introduced you to this revolutionary AI last year. And since then, you might have seen a flood of stories on how this is going to change our lives and the Pandora's box it has opened. Tom's back to update us now on the fallout, how big tech is trying to catch up and what this all means for the future. With an estimated 100 million unique visitors already this year, the two-month-old chat GPT is growing faster than TikTok or Instagram initially did, analysts say, and it's generating endless headlines about an artificial intelligence revolution. If we had a day, I could fill every hour in that day with some of the perils of this technology and why we ought to be both fascinated and concerned. ChatGPT uses a vast database coupled with artificial intelligence, AI, to solve math problems, generate computer code, and most of all, write sentences, paragraphs, whole pages that seem very human. At the U.S. Capitol... This is a critical step forward in an era where AI and its implications are taking center stage in public discourse. A congressman gave a speech he says was entirely written by ChatGPT. I wanted to spotlight this for Congress so that we have a debate now about purposeful policy for AI and not be 10 years behind the ball like I think a lot of policy was for social media. The public debate is raging. Fearful of students using ChatGPT to write essays, some schools, including New York's, are banning it. Professors are saying they may not be able to spot it. And in business, ChatGPT is reportedly assisting executives, checking in with clients, and collecting converts. I don't see anything wrong with the CEO using it to send letters. That sounds like a good idea to me. In legal circles, the bot is passing law exams and finding more fans. You can have it read police reports. You can, you can have it see if witnesses gave contradictory testimony. Even in medicine, the buzz over bots helping direct treatments is deafening. What this technology could really enable and has already started enabling us 
is to suddenly suggest things that we might not be thinking of at all. It will absolutely save lives. Against that backdrop, Microsoft is investing billions in OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT, even as other companies are scrambling to develop their own chatbots and apps to detect the work of AI in school papers, news reports, and more. The big question, how many jobs can these bots do and possibly take from humans? It's an incredible innovation. At the same time, it's like opening a Pandora's box. Now, to slow the roll on this just a little bit, this chat GPT still gets many things completely wrong. The website CNET used a different AI program to write some articles for it and then had to pull them back because they simply had things that were incorrect in this. This is still very early, Jake. We're still just beginning to move on this. It's not clear how far it's going to take us to the good or to the bad, but you and I sat here more than a month ago discussing this topic. We said it was going to be a big deal, and yeah, it's really, really big. I think it's a horrible idea. I, I just we'll be on the record. I think the whole thing is a horrible idea. <laughs> well, I, I, we'll find this out. is like when uh, Attenborough cloned the cloned only female really? dinosaurs like on Jurassic Park. Yes, it's, it's right. a horrible idea. I'll see you back in the steam. It's age. the Velociraptors are coming. I hear them <laughs> right now. Tom Foreman, thanks so much. Well, coming up, the wicked cold snap. This is Portland, Maine. It's a brutal 22 below right now. The dangerous conditions that come along with the very low temperatures. That's coming up. That wind only makes it worse. This is at the airport in Bangor, Maine, where the wind chill felt around negative 30 today. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. New England is getting the brunt of a brutal Arctic blast. Get this, the top of Mount Washington in beautiful New Hampshire feels as though it's 100 degrees below zero today. And the cold snap is widespread. Plus, in Texas, an arrest linked to those missing monkeys at the Dallas Zoo. What police say about a 24-year-old man who's now in custody. But leading this hour, that Chinese spy balloon, apparently on the move with reported sightings first in Montana and then Missouri. The Pentagon not saying whether there are specific plans to shoot this spy balloon down. CNN's Orrin Lieberman starts us off this hour from the Pentagon. I have no idea what this thing is. A Chinese spy balloon drifting across the United States. What the heck is that? Pentagon calls it an unacceptable violation of U.S. airspace and international law. We know this is a Chinese balloon um, and that it has the ability to maneuver. It's definitely moving. The balloon is headed east at 60,000 feet and will be over the U.S. for several more days, the Pentagon says, though officials not confirming its location. The public certainly has the ability to look up in the sky and, and see where the balloon is. The balloon has made its way from where it was first spotted in Montana on Wednesday, down through the middle of the country, and to sightings in Missouri, a slow, almost scenic route across the heart of America. In a rare Friday night statement, China apologized, saying it was an off-course weather balloon. According to the Chinese Foreign Ministry, it is a civilian airship used for research, mainly meteorological purposes. Affected by the westerlies and with limited self-steering capability, the airship deviated far from its planned course. It's an explanation that former Director of National Intelligence James Clapper finds compelling. I don't think the Chinese would expend uh, the political capital here for an intelligence purpose in the face of and in contrast to their very capable overhead reconnaissance satellite program, which gives them all the intelligence that uh, they need. 
But we've heard the science excuse before from Beijing. When China tested a hypersonic missile that went around the world in 2021, they claimed it was a routine spacecraft experiment. They have a massive espionage campaign. This is like TikTok. Does anybody trust China? Of course not. And for good reason. No one trusts China. China has spy satellites, but one thing they can't do is loiter over one area like a balloon. Key difference here. The Pentagon says it'll continuously track the balloon as it makes its way across America. The U.S. response so far on the diplomatic front, with Secretary of State Anthony Blinken delaying his high-stakes visit to Beijing. We concluded that conditions were not conducive for a constructive visit at this time. PRC's decision to take this action on the eve of my planned visit is detrimental to the substantive discussions that we were prepared to have. As for where this goes from here, the Pentagon says for now they're continuously tracking this balloon. They determined that it's slow risk in terms of what it can gather, and because of that, they're not going to shoot it down, partially because of the risk to property and people below. Instead, they'll keep an eye on it, and Jake, if that risk goes up, the military option remains on the table. Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Thanks so much to the other big story in our world lead today. The liberated southern Ukrainian city of Kherson has come under an onslaught of Russian attacks in the last day. The city's been shelled 18 times just today, killing at least one civilian, according to Ukrainian authorities. Fires raging throughout the city as civilians say they're in desperate need of help. CNN's Sam Kiley is live for us in Zaporizhia, Ukraine. Sam, you just left Kherson. What is life like there for Ukrainians right now? It's an extraordinary, unpleasant place to have been liberated. You recall the jubilation back in November that uh, my colleague Nick Robertson so dramatically recorded. He was there on the Day of Liberation, dancing in the streets in Freedom Square, aptly named. Now that square that I was in is almost completely deserted. The, the latest figures from uh, the government say that at least 77 people have been killed by Russian bombardment since the city was liberated. Sometimes they are seeing 60, 70, uh, as often more than 50 strikes with direct fire from tanks, from mortars, from grads. And this is all coming from the Russian positions just on the other side of the Dnipro River. Now, that is a natural defensive barrier for both sides. So it's unlikely to escalate into a ground war there, Jake. But what we have been seeing and what the Ukrainians are speaking very bitterly about those that can remain uh, in the city, mostly trapped by poverty, unable to leave, is that they are being bombarded at random in a systematic attempt by the Russians, and we've seen it in so many other uh, cities around the country, to take on and try to break the will of Ukrainian civilians if they can't break the lines of the military, Jake. And you're learning more about this expected Russian offensive that would coincide with the one-year anniversary of the start of the invasion later this month. Yes, it's interesting. The Ukrainians have been talking about an anticipated offensive. They were talking about the spring. They've now more recently talked about it becoming later this month and into March. They are talking up, I think, the whole anniversary date. It would be, frankly, a very stupid military that would build any kind of strategic or even tactical operation around an anniversary or a birthday or something. But what I think they're doing is ramping up the rhetoric around what is a very real threat. That is a large number, possibly 300,000 troops massing 
uh, or at least in, in training and mobilization on the Russian side. The Russians have been moving more troops and probing more on the southern front. Of course, the fighting in the east in Donbass around Bakhmut has been extremely bloody and bitter and continues that way. And there have been exercises in Belarus. All of this adds up in the view, not just of the Ukrainians, but their allies in the west to an imminent threat. When that threat would be delivered is the debate, Jake. All right, Sam Kiley in Zaporizhia, Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Let's discuss this with Richard Haas, president of the Council of Foreign Relations and the author of the brand new book, The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens. Congratulations on the book. Um, We're just three weeks away from the one-year anniversary uh, of the beginning of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. As you heard uh, from Fred just a second ago, officials uh, and and Sam, uh, officials in, in Kiev say... The Kremlin is planning a major offensive to coincide with this date. What would need to happen for Russia to withdraw from Ukraine? Well, I don't see that in the cards, Jake. Uh, A withdrawal from Ukraine would pose potentially or even actually a direct threat to Vladimir Putin's rule at at home. So I simply simply don't see that as a, a possibility unless Ukraine were to overwhelmingly rout Russian forces. And at the moment, uh, that's not in the cards. So the most likely scenario is not Russian withdrawal, but rather continued war. No, of course, uh, that that's what's expected. But I'm just wondering long term what you think. You think the only way this ends with Russia out of the country is if the West gives Ukraine enough weapons, major weapons, that they're able to defeat uh, Russia militarily. Well, even if we gave them more weapons than we're giving, it's not clear to me that that task could be accomplished given how many Russian forces there are, how dug in there are. It's, it's quite possible we won't get at the kind of resolution you're, you're discussing uh, until there's a new leadership in Russia, that it might take some future Russian leader who wants to reintegrate Russia in, in Europe, reduce some of the sanctions and the like, who would be willing to make some compromises. But I simply don't see it happening under Mr. Putin. On the other major story uh, this, this day, this week, uh, Secretary Blinken canceled a high-stakes trip to, to Beijing, to China, in the wake of this Chinese uh, surveillance balloon. Uh, relations between the U.S. and China are already very strained. How much does this further complicate uh, the relationship, do you think? It, it adds to it. I mean, both the, the incident with the balloon and then the response. Uh, it's not the response I would have recommended. If I, if I were advising, I would have said, shoot down the balloon to show uh, we're not going to live with that sort of thing, but go ahead with the trip. You know, the purpose of, a, of diplomacy is not to do a favor to, to China. It's to put a floor on this uh, critical relationship. I kind of like the idea, Jake, of showing that we're willing to, to defend our interests, but we're not against diplomacy. So uh, I don't see the logic, quite honestly, of, of, of canceling uh, a trip. Uh, I'm much more worried ultimately about the United States and China coming into blows or something over, over Taiwan and putting guardrails on this relationship, I would think, is a priority. You're known as a foreign policy expert and a diplomat. Your new book, of course, uh, The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens, uh, is largely about citizenship and domestic politics. As to why this focus for your book, you write, quote, the most urgent and significant threat to American security and stability stems not from abroad, but from within, from political divisions that for only the second time in U.S. history have raised questions about the future of American democracy and even the United States itself. Explain why you view this uh, as such a major threat. 
Well, don't get me wrong. There's obviously a lot of external threats from China to Russia, as we've just been discussing. But history suggests we can contend with external threats if we're unified, if we have the resources, if we have the, the, the bandwidth. And I'm worried that right now we're not going to be able to come together to deal with our many domestic challenges. That will be you know, distracting, to say the least. We won't then have the resources we want. And I'm worried that what we saw on January 6th may prove not to be a one-off. I can imagine politically inspired violence rather than being the exception having happening uh, with increasing frequency. And if any of that comes to pass, again, we're not going to have the, the unity, the bandwidth, the, the will to focus on the world. The subtitle of your book, uh, as I said, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens, one of the habits you identify, to stay open to compromise. This is what you write about the current state of being open to compromise in Washington. Quote, I am not sure when compromise became a four-letter word. For some, it is little more than a synonym for selling out, for abandoning one's principles in pursuit of an outcome, unquote. You have some prescriptive solutions in the book. How do we go about changing that, where compromise is not a dirty word? Well, compromise began as a very healthy word. The Constitution never would have been agreed to without all sorts of compromise. It's interesting that John F. Kennedy in Profiles encouraged Jake some of the senators he most lauded were senators who were willing to compromise even when doing so was unpopular. I think the, at the end of the day, it'll only happen when voters give politicians protection. People have to understand that they've got to get involved and vote. The fact that more than half of Americans who could have voted in the midterms did not, that sort of thing has to change. I would argue for civics in our schools to be taught. I would argue for national service to, to be instituted on a larger scale. But at the end of the day, politicians, they may not be responsible. They, they are, however, as you know, responsive. And I think it's up to the voters to reward productive and constructive behaviors, penalize the, the opposite. Compromise ought to be something we reward. All right, Richard Haas, author of the brand new book, The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens. Thanks and congrats on the book. First, he called them a pariah. Then he said he'd punish Saudi Arabia. But now... Nothing. What CNN is learning about President Biden's promises not kept. But first, the dangerous cold snap that has much of the northeastern United States frozen. In Mount Washington, in New Hampshire right now, the highest peak in the northeastern United States, the wind chill is now 103 degrees below zero. Across the rest of the Midwest and the northeastern United States, it is a cold snap for the record books. Let's get straight to, see me, to meteorologist Jennifer Gray. Jennifer, bring us uh, the latest forecast. Yeah, the coldest air is going to be here tomorrow morning. So overnight tonight into tomorrow morning, that's when we really, really have to be careful. It will be cold all weekend long, but I'm saying temperatures will bottom out by tomorrow morning. Uh, Boston, uh, current wind chill is 10 below zero. New York City feels like two degrees right now, and it's only going to get colder. We're talking about frostbite settling in in a matter of minutes. So areas where the temperature is going to drop to 50 below zero, the wind chill, and it is going to happen, uh, uh, that frostbite can settle in in about five minutes, 30 below in about 10 minutes on that unexposed skin. So let's take a look at the temperatures. Portland, uh, 42 below zero. This is this evening within the next couple of hours. Frostbite could settle in in 10 minutes. Uh, Burlington, about 15 minutes. And then as we go through tomorrow morning, temperatures drop even more. Boston, 36 below zero, Jake. It is going to be dangerously cold, but then moderate 
by the end of the weekend. All right, Jennifer Gray, thanks so much. Let's go to CNN's Athena Jones. She's in Boston where temperatures are dropping fast. And Athena, you've been experiencing this all day. What are conditions like there right now? Hi, Jake. Well, they are continuing to drop. We're now in the single digits, about eight degrees uh, Fahrenheit, but the feels like is about minus 11. And that is exactly what was forecast. You know, early this morning when we started, it was just under freezing. Now it is way below freezing. You heard Jennifer Gray talk about how dangerous uh, this kind of weather can be with the wind, with the low temperatures. In addition to that, the wind chills and also the wind gusts themselves. Uh, late into night in some parts of the area, they, or of the region, uh, they could get as high as 50 miles per hour. That's the kind of wind that can knock down trees and, and, and affect power. And of course, no one wants to lose power when it's this cold. Uh, people have been preparing, the, the mayor of the city of Boston declaring a, a cold emergency. Uh, that means that Boston public schools were closed today so that students didn't have to commute uh, to school, you know, bus stops and long walks. They've also opened a, a number of warming centers across the city and they've kept a train station. They're keeping it open all night and rather than kicking out uh, the people who don't have a place to go. Uh, we talked to some folks who were out, who did brave the cold. Everyone's supposed to be staying inside as much as possible. But here is what these folks said about why they were out and what they'd learned in the past from the winters. Take a listen. Make sure I'm always wearing my layers so I don't get frostbite like I did last year um, when I was outside too long. I'm wearing like 60 layers right now. I've got two pairs of pants on, three shirts and a sweater and then a longer jacket. Like I'm just ready to rock and roll. And you heard that uh, woman talking about that. And you heard the woman talking about the, the many layers, the visitor from North Carolina, the many layers she's wearing. Well, I'm wearing a lot of layers, too, just to keep safe. Three hats, eight layers on top, four on bottom. And I'm still quite cold, Jake. And this is not the worst of it. It is going to get much worse over the course uh, of the rest of the night. Negative Jake. 11 degrees Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit with the wind chill in Boston. Athena, get inside right now. Joining us now, Craig Klemmer, Craig Klemmer director of marketing at the Omni Mount Washington Resort. That's at the base of the mountain where the summit wind chills are 103 below zero. Thanks for joining me, Craig. These live images from the summit, uh, it looks like the planet Hoth from Star Wars. Describe the conditions where you are at the base of the mountain. Well, at the base of the mountain right now, uh, we're about minus 23. Uh, The lobby's nice and warm, uh, but outside there's a little bit of wind going on. Uh, We were skiing at Bretton Woods today, our ski area. Uh, but we are really uh, uh, looking for a cold snap. But uh, people are, are ready for it. They're enjoying everything here at the hotel and, and enjoying uh, the, the best show on earth is looking at Mount Washington and watching that uh, thermometer drop uh, from the lobby of this hotel. Yeah, the best show on earth from, from inside, from the lobby. How many guests yeah, are, are, yeah, are at your hotel right now? What sort of measures are in place to, to keep them safe, to keep them warm? Yeah, we've, we've been prepared for this weather all week. Uh, we've gone through uh, making sure that our safety plans are in place, making sure our generators are uh, up to snuff and uh, fueled up and ready to go. We have about 500 guests in the hotel. We actually have two uh, weddings this weekend, one going off uh, right down uh, the, the, the Great Hall from me in the uh, Grand Ballroom, and then one next uh, uh, this Saturday. Uh, but we are uh, very well prepared here at the property. All of our associates understand uh what uh, the signs of frostbite look like, and we are obviously uh, taking good care of all of our guests uh, and making sure that the hotel is warm and safe. Our engineering team has gone through the uh, property, making sure all the windows are closed tight, and we are ready for the uh, for the weekend. I've spent many a, a cold uh, January in, in Hanover, New Hampshire, but uh, not negative 100 Fahrenheit. 
Uh, Craig Klemmer, uh, thank, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Hope you all stay warm. Thank you. This hour, President Biden laying out a future for Democrats and may need to convince critics in his own party which state should vote first in the next race for the White House. Stay with us. In less than an hour, President Biden will address the Democratic National Committee at its winter meeting. The speech is expected to preview his platform for a possible 2024 run, as well as his State of the Union address this coming Tuesday. CNN's Arlette Signs is in Philadelphia, where the DNC meeting is taking place. Arlette, what, what do we expect to hear from the president tonight? Well, Jake, President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris are making a rare joint appearance out on the road. And really, they have two purposes here. One, to tout their accomplishments of the past two years. And secondly, to sharpen their attacks against Republicans. On that first front, the White House has really made a concerted effort in the weeks leading up to the State of the Union to try to tout some of their wins from the past two years. That is why President Biden traveled to Baltimore, New York, and today here to Philadelphia, in particular to talk about that Biden bipartisan infrastructure law. The White House has tried to promote their bipartisan work as he's heading into that State of the Union. And we just learned moments ago that the president will continue this travel blitz after the State of the Union, traveling to Wisconsin and Florida. But then there is also the political nature of his visit here to Philadelphia. He will be speaking at the winter meeting of the Democratic National Committee. And officials say that he is readying his attacks against Republicans, with one official saying the president is ready to go after quote, MAGA Republicans' extreme out-of-touch plans. You have seen this real eagerness from President Biden in recent weeks to go after Republicans on things like the economy, Social Security, and Medicare, trying to draw that contrast. And, of course, all of this could serve as a preview for a possible 2024 run. And, Arlette, the DNC is also expected to vote tomorrow on the Democratic Party's primary calendar for 2024. What's that going to look like? Well, Jake, Democrats tomorrow are expected to give the green light to a new primary calendar that really upends the way that Democrats are nominating their presidential nominees. They're removing Iowa from that very first position and replacing it with South Carolina, a state that essentially delivered the presidential nomination to President Biden back in 2020. It would then be followed by Nevada, New Hampshire, as well as Georgia and Michigan. But just because Democrats give this the green light and okay, there are still some logistical hurdles that need to be cleared, particularly when it comes to the states of Georgia and New Hampshire, which have their primary dates uh, set on the state level. And New Hampshire, which has been very resistant to these changes, today the state's chair, Ray Buckley, said that they've been put in a, quote, in an impossible no-win position. But bottom line here, President Biden has been trying to uh, make the case that voters of color need to have representation early on in the nominating process, and that is what he is hoping this change in the primary calendar will do. Arlette Sines, thanks so much. Let's discuss, Leanne, if people think that it's cold in New Hampshire right now, (laughs) wait until Joe Biden goes there after he's gotten rid of them as the first in the nation primary. Uh, Listen to... One of uh, Biden's delegates from 2020, Steve Shirtleff, uh, talking about this new proposal. I'll look for another candidate before I'd support Joe Biden if he should go so far as to take away the first of the nation primary from the greatest state. That's a Biden delegate. (laughs) Well, the two New Hampshire senators didn't go to a party at the White House because they were so mad at President Biden about this. Um, People from New Hampshire, politicos, are saying that it is going to jeopardize him winning the general election 
in 2024 should he run again. Of course, he hasn't announced he's going to run again yet. But New Hampshire is taking this very, very personally. And I should say, like, these victories in New Hampshire for folks who aren't nerds like the rest of us are always pretty thin. They're pretty, pretty close. Like uh, the presidential ones, I mean. Like yeah, nobody wins a, a landslide victory right. in New Hampshire. If the Democrat wins and they have in the last few elections, it's by two, three percentage points, four percentage points. Yeah. Well, three years ago today, we were sitting in our hotel rooms in Iowa waiting for the results of that caucus. And it's we're good, still waiting. It's a good thing we didn't hold our breath. <laughs> so I think some changes will be good. But look, in 2006, Harry Reid and Janet Napolitano lobbied against each other, fought against each other to have their states moved up. Uh, Senator Reid won that fight. He was leader. Joe Biden, to his credit, has entered the gauntlet of presidential primaries three times now. He's the leader of the party. And like all families, we'll fight and cry, but we'll come together. So I understand, get, I understand Democrats getting rid of Iowa. That's mm-hmm. now a red state, at least mm-hmm. just, you know, for the next 10, 20 years. But what about New Hampshire? Well, the argument was one that they were having during the 2020 presidential primary, which was about the fact that New Hampshire isn't as reflective of their base. They've been wanting to move up a, a state that they say is more reflective of the base of their voters, black voters, Latino voters. And so that's why you're seeing South Carolina leaps to the front and then Nevada also move up to be alongside New Hampshire. And I was talking to a number of DNC members today who said that they're positive this vote is going to go the way they want it to, the way the president wants it to tomorrow and that they're actually really annoyed with the New Hampshire uh, members because of how vocal they're being against the president. And they're trying to call for unity to support what President Biden wants, saying that in four more years they can reevaluate and change it again when uh, a potential, it's a potential wider field of candidates. What do you make of it all? Well, look, there are whole economies that develop around these early states, mm-hmm. right? So I understand why people in New Hampshire are upset because there's a lot of economic impact if you pull out from there as a first in the nation. People don't go there. They lose revenue. I mean, this is all a big deal. It's not just political. TV. I can't even imagine what they're going to do. I mean, not not to mention a lot of diners in Manchester from which live shots are done and and people visit. And I mean, there's lots of different things that happen around this. But to to alter the uh, nature of the calendar, it it is the president's prerogative. He is the leader of the party. You know, if a Republican president were in charge and a Republican president wanted to alter the Republican calendar, he could probably do so. Let's go to the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Uh, Interesting. uh, There's an interesting uh, thing going on there. The uh, Kelly Craft, who was uh, Trump's ambassador to the United Nations, she's running for governor. Uh, She needs to get through the Republican primary first. She released a new campaign ad that's raising eyebrows. I'll explain why at the other end of it. Take a look. All across Kentucky, an empty chair, a place missing at the table, families suffering because fentanyl and other dangerous drugs have stolen our loved ones away. As a mother, this is personal to me because I've experienced that empty chair at my table. Now, we should note she hasn't actually lost a family member to the fentanyl or opioid crisis. Uh, She later revealed to Lex 18 that the loved one missing at her table was a living family member who had to go away for treatment Um, But people are criticizing her uh, for being misleading. Others are saying, no, part of the crisis is people not being there because they're dealing with this crisis. Um, What do you think? I will say that when I initially watched the ad, I did think that someone had died to uh, due to their uh, a drug overdose or due to their drug abuse. That being said, you know, in my family, we also did have a family member that, um, that suffered from drug abuse and had to go to rehab. And thankfully, that person did not succumb and did not die. And so I I do understand that that sometimes means that those people are not then at family gatherings or not there when you're trying to get together. Um, 
it, of course, is that ad, you know, she was very careful with her wording and was trying to grab the the viewers and the voters' attention uh, with it. Yeah, it was confusing at best or, you know, misleading at worst. When the Biden campaign ran our ad, Empty Chairs, in October of 2020, we were very explicit. This was about 200,000 American deaths that didn't have to happen um, as a result of bad leadership. So we were very clear what we were referring to. But Kelly is also running in a uh, 11-person primary. She has endless amounts of money. This is actually going to help her stand out a little bit against a candidate uh, who has the endorsement of her former boss. Um, And she'll be on the air. She's been on the air since December, and she'll probably stay on the air through the primary. So this is probably good for her. And while the controversy is allowing her to attack the media for misrepresenting. Yes, she can work the refs. Mm -hmm. um, Because there have been some editorials about it being uh, misleading. I mean, I guess I do understand the larger argument she's making. But like you, when I first saw the ad, I'm like, oh, that's so sad. She'd lost a loved one. She was um, not specific in that. Right. She could have been more specific. But And now the ad's been replayed a lot more than she would have seen it played if she just run the ad and there was no controversy, right? That's the thing about all of these ads that are, quote, controversial. The earned media impact mm-hmm. of playing an ad many more times far exceeds just even the people who would have seen the ad. So, you know, I, to me, it's a controversy about nothing. I, I think oh, it's a fine ad. You think it's okay? The, the, no. the confusion? I, th- I mean, I think she's pretty clear in, in the ad itself that she's talking about the fentanyl crisis. Yeah. It doesn't bother me. I don't think it draws, you know, I don't think it comes close to the line, so it doesn't bother me. In a way that you could even argue that it prompts discussion about the losses that aren't necessarily life losses, but they are, sure. uh, I mean, in, in, I, don't know that, and- I don't know that it was intended for that, that higher purpose of discussion, but we are having it. Yeah, I think it, I think it was misleading. I thought the same. I thought that she had lost a family member, she says, as a mother. But she is addressing this issue, which is a really hot campaign issue for Republicans in a different way than many Republicans did on the campaign trail in 2020. She is bringing a lot of empathy to it rather than bashing, connecting it to immigration and an open border. And that might work for her. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I agree with everything everyone said. Um, I do want to ask uh, Indiana Republican Congresswoman Victoria Sparks, uh, who a lot of people thought might run for Senate. Uh, is actually announcing she's not going to run for office at all, uh, not for re-election, clearing the way, obviously, for Republican Congressman Jim Banks to run for the Senate seat. But there's also uh, people upset because they saw her as a a bright star in the Republican Party, the first uh, Ukrainian-American to serve. Yeah, well, it it, it clears the path. It avoids a messy primary. You would have had three people potentially with Sparks, Mitch Daniels, who's not going to run, and obviously Congressman Banks. So, I mean, this is kind of what the McConnell team has been hoping for in some ways, which mm. is that these primaries are clear, that we're not going to have these Republican on Republican fights that end up dragging candidates to the right and making them less palatable in states where there is a little bit of color, a little bit of tint to the, it's not a, a full on red state. I think there's a little bit of tint to Indiana. You know, Not that long ago, a Democrat won Indiana for president. So I think for the Republicans, this is probably a good development. Well, Democrats would argue that Banks is pretty out there uh, in the extreme already. Yeah, exactly. I was a little surprised that she's retiring completely. Mm-hmm. She won the seat originally with four points. And I think uh, in her last election, she won by 30. So it was redistricted very safely for her. Um, but it probably, you know, I think it also speaks to sort of the lack of faith in McCarthy's leadership. And if you're getting retirements this early in Congress, that's a bad sign for, for a party with a very small margin of victory. She also talked quite a bit about um, being a mother. I think she has kids who are teens. And it's difficult to do this job as, as a mom, which once again underlines how it's even tougher for moms than it is for dads in politics because of the extra obligations 
as being the primary family uh, member when it comes to raising kids quite often. Yeah, absolutely. You have to take her statement at her word that her family is a consideration. But I will say she went from considering a run for Senate. Jim Banks cleared the field and then all of a sudden she's not running again. I will say it's been, you know, it's only been one and a half terms or one term in a few Mm -hmm. months. She's kind of struggled to find her footing in the Republican Party. Uh, She came out very strongly against Zelensky in Ukraine. Uh, During the speaker's vote, she came out. um, She voted present in the second round against McCarthy. And then just recently, she uh, was going to vote against McCarthy and keep Omar on her committee. So she's been a really interesting figure. And I'm kind of confused why she decided to step back. I haven't gotten a good answer yet. What do you think? I mean, I agree a lot with what Leanne said, which is that she hasn't been in Congress that long, and it's hard to tell where exactly um, she was going to go in terms of policies because of the the back and forth. All right. Thanks, one and all. Hope you have a great weekend. And you can join me along with CNN's Anderson Cooper Tuesday night for President Biden's State of the Union Address. Coverage begins at 8 p.m. Eastern. Coming up, a restraining order is not enough to limit your right to a gun. The new court ruling sparking outrage among advocates for survivors of domestic abuse. That's next. Despite a very public pledge that he would punish the Saudis for cutting oil production in partnership with Russia, President Biden, months later, still has no plans to do so, according to multiple sources on Capitol Hill and in the Biden administration. You might remember Biden telling me quite the opposite just in October. Do you think it's time for the U.S. to rethink its relationship with Saudi Arabia? Yes. And by the way, let's get straight why I went. I didn't go to one about oil. I went about making sure that we made sure that we weren't going to walk away from the Middle East. There's going to be some consequences for what they've done with Russia. Consequences for what they've done with Russia. CNN's MJ Lee is with me. And MJ, what are your sources telling you? about Biden's apparent reversal uh, on plans for consequences. Well, Jake, this was now four months ago that he told you that Saudi Arabia would suffer consequences after this OPEC decision. Uh, And it was at the time really a slap in the face for the administration, especially because he had just traveled to Saudi Arabia, even though that was really controversial. And because gas prices here at home were so high, uh, one of the hopes was that meeting with them and meeting with MBS could help drive uh, oil prices down and boost production, right? Uh, But four months later now, what sources are telling us is that One, there are no proactive steps being taken right now to punish Saudi Arabia and that U.S.-Saudi Arabia review that the White House has said that they would conduct. That is not happening either. Lawmakers have told us uh, this is not something that the administration has reached out to us about. And so this is a a very notable about face and just indicates that they think that U.S.-Saudi sort of security interests and keeping that Uh, amicable is more important than anything else. And how are lawmakers on Capitol Hill reacting to this apparent breaking of a pledge? They are frustrated. They are concerned. They think that it can send the message to Saudi Arabia that there's going to be no punishment for what they did back in October. There's also just the concern that this decision is being made for sort of domestic political reasons, uh, one of them, of course, being that gas prices are, are, have come down a lot in the last uh, couple of months. Uh, one senior Democratic aide told me there's only so much patience one can have when you've been asking for a conversation for four months. So uh, this issue, I think, just has not bubbled over quite yet, but I do think that can change in the next couple of months if we continue to see the administration not taking action on this front. All right, MJ Lee, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Turning to our national lead now, two Memphis first responders have had their licenses suspended for what they did and did not do 
when they responded to the site of Tyree Nichols' brutal arrest. The Tennessee Emergency Medical Services Division says Robert Long and Jamichael Sandridge failed to render emergency care and treatment to Nichols when they arrived on the scene. Long and Sandridge were already fired from the Memphis Fire Department after an investigation. Also in our national lead, a federal appeals court has effectively sided with domestic abusers who've been hit with restraining orders and who want to keep their guns. Advocates for domestic violence victims say the move by a three-judge panel from the conservative-leaning Fifth Court of Appeals puts those survivors of domestic violence at greater risk. Part of the reasoning for the ruling was the U.S. Supreme Court just last year striking down a New York gun law that had previously banned concealed carry outside the home in that state. CNN Guns and Security Correspondent Josh Campbell is following this for us. And Josh, explain how the appeals court made its decision and, and what could be the larger ramifications here. Well, Jake, this wide-reaching decision stemmed from a case involving a Texas man named Zaki Rahimi. Now, for background on him, he was accused of a number of gun crimes beginning in late 2020. He allegedly shot at someone after selling them drugs, shot at a police officer, opened fire inside a Whataburger fast food joint after his credit card was declined. He's facing state charges for all of that, but the federal charge stemmed from guns that authorities found at his home, which were unlawful to possess because he had a restraining order against him after he allegedly beat up his ex-girlfriend. But in this controversial new ruling, this uh, conservative court ruled that despite that violent past and that restraining order, he can still have guns. And their rationale stems from that landmark 2022 Supreme Court decision you mentioned that essentially determined that gun laws have to be tied to historical precedent. I'll read part of that ruling. They say that courts are required to assess whether modern firearms regulations are consistent with the Second Amendment's text and historical understanding. There must be a well-established and representative historical analog. Basically, Jake and Layman's terms, that means that since there was no domestic violence law involving firearms at the time the Constitution was written over 230 years ago, according to this court, this particular law is unconstitutional. Is the Justice Department planning on doing anything about this? Well, Attorney General Merrick Garland blasted the ruling. He said in a statement, I'll read part of it, that whether analyzed through the lens of Supreme Court precedent or of the text, history, and tradition of the Second Amendment, this statute is constitutional. Accordingly, he says the department will seek further review of the Fifth Circuit's contrary decision. It is unclear, Jake, whether the DOJ will be seeking an appeal to the full Fifth Circuit Bank of Judges or whether they will decide to go directly to the Supreme Court. But as we wait to hear more on that, we're hearing from numerous domestic abuse victim advocates who say that they're horrified by this new federal ruling and the potential harm they believe could result from alleged domestic abusers now legally able to own guns, Jake. All right, Josh Campbell, thanks so much. Coming up next, the person police suspect let animals out at the Dallas Zoo. He is now finding himself behind bars. Stay with us. In our national lead, Dallas police today announced an arrest that may put an end to the recent monkey business at the Dallas Zoo. Authorities have been investigating A series of suspicious incidents, including an escaped leopard, a dead vulture, and of course those aforementioned stolen monkeys. CNN's Ed Lavendera is outside the zoo. Ed, who's this guy they arrested and how did they catch him? Well, this is uh, the suspect is 24-year-old Davian Irvin. He was found yesterday um, visiting the Dallas Aquarium, not too far from the Dallas Zoo, asking rather odd questions and that raised uh, the interest of the people there at the aquarium and then they matched it with a picture that had been released of a person of interest and that brought them all back to the situation here at the Dallas Zoo. Irvin was taken into custody yesterday afternoon and now Dallas police say he has been charged with several criminal counts including 
uh, six counts of animal cruelty as well as burglary. And he has been connected, according to Dallas police, to the theft of the two monkeys that were found earlier this week safe uh, in an abandoned house several miles away from the Dallas Zoo, but also going back almost three weeks to various animals enclosures, including uh, a monkey enclosure and also a leopard enclosure that had been cut. Uh, the, 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 the encasing of those enclosures had been cut and those one animal was able to escape that, that uh, leopard uh, that was found on the grounds safely. And then there was another uh, monkey exhibit that was also cut. None of those animals escaped, uh, but it has been a very mysterious situation. And what authorities here still don't have a clear answer to is what is the motivation behind all of this, Jake? Ed, you were inside the zoo today. You saw the cages have been cut, as you no- noted. What, what are zoo officials saying about these incidents? Well, you know, they're really overwhelmed and and rather troubled by exactly what's going on here because there's just a lack of answers as to exactly what has happened. And, you know, there was also uh, the vulture that you mentioned off the top that was in a different part of the zoo, but it was a rare animal, and that animal died, was found with a wound um, after they had uh, performed examinations on on that vulture. So all of this incredibly disturbing uh, for the people that, that work at the zoo here as they try to figure out more as to why exactly this has happened, why someone would go to these lengths to, to do this. So they're still trying to come up with all of these unanswered que- answers to all these questions that they just don't really have a clear understanding of right now. Is the suspect connected to that dead vulture? So far, officially, in- investigators are saying that they have not uh, connected this particular suspect uh, to the incident or whatever happened to, to, the, to that vulture. Uh, right now, he is connected to uh, the, uh, the kidnapping or the, the abduction of, of those monkeys that were found several miles away in an abandoned house, as well as the cuts to the enclosure where the leopard and the other monkeys were at. Just, and just so we can paint a good, a, a good picture, those two initial uh, cuts on those in, enclosed areas were right next to each other in one part of the, uh, of, of the zoo the monkeys that were taken earlier this week was uh, just a few hundred yards away from where that initially happened. And the vulture is in a totally different part of the zoo. Jake? All right, Ed Lavender in Dallas, Texas. Thanks so much. And the sports lead posts about the king will likely dominate your social media feed for the next few days. LeBron James is on the cusp of setting the NBA's all-time scoring record. He's only 63 points away from Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's title, which is at 38,387 points. LeBron currently sits at 38,325. LeBron is 38 years old. He's in his 20th NBA season. Abdul-Jabbar has held the all-time scoring record since 1984. That's when he surpassed Wilt Chamberlain's title. Vice President Kamala Harris uh, just took the stage at the Democratic National Committee winter meeting in the great city of Philadelphia. Coming up next, President Biden is expected to preview his platform for a possible 2024 run, as well as his State of the Union address this coming Tuesday. Also on the agenda for this meeting, the DNC is expected to vote tomorrow on the party's primary calendar for 2024, which could mean New Hampshire, that great state, will lose its status as the first in the nation primary, at least for the Democrats. Coming up on Sunday on State of the Union, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg with some questions about the airspace that Chinese satellite is occupying, plus a joint interview with Republican Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick and Democrat Josh Gottheimer, the co-chairs of the Problem Solvers Caucus, at Sunday morning at 9 Eastern and again at noon. Coming up next in the Situation Room, the Chinese spy balloon saga 
Does the U.S. need to shoot it down? The former Secretary of Defense and Director of the CIA, Leon Panetta, is going to join my friend Wolf Blitzer. That's next. See you Sunday. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.